Hey there, friends and fellow warriors. Welcome to another episode of Warriors and Hope with Valerie Silvera. I'm Valerie Silvera, but today is all about my guest, Casey Arag. Wait, I had it all right when we talked beforehand. Dang it. It was all that discussion we had. Casey Ariaga. Got it. I'm seeing a thumbs up here. And this is really going to be different than any other guest that I've had. And I'm super excited about it because I think the topic that we're going to end up talking about, and who knows what we'll talk about today, is, is not one that people maybe have thought about. And I think that he has found a really cool way for this message to get across to young children with regard to addiction. So I'm going to first tell you a little bit about Casey. He is a clinical social worker and chemical dependency counselor who's lived with and around addiction all his life. In his book, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, and then his podcast, Addiction and the Family, which he so graciously had me on recently as a guest, he shares the knowledge gained from conducting hundreds of family workshops and helping thousands of family members and also weaves in his own narrative of recovery, both as an individual and a family member. Casey also works as a therapist at two different treatment centers in Texas. And he does a lot of outpatient therapy. Obviously, he works with families. So I just want to first welcome you, Casey. Thank you so much. What a beautiful intro. And yes, it is an honor to be here. It was great to have you on Addiction in the Family. And Really happy to now be able to come and, and join you on your podcast. Thank you so much. You are welcome. So this is um, really interesting. I think before we get started on, because I know we want to talk a lot about your new book, but to lead up to that, something that in your bio kind of caught my attention. So you said you grew up around addiction your entire life. Yes. So can you kind of explain a little bit of background on that? Sure. So I have two different family stories in a way, one a little bit shorter than the other. I was born into a family where addiction showed up in various ways. Both my parents have signs of, my birth parents, I should say, have signs of sex and love addiction. One of them will openly acknowledge that. The other one is like, well, I don't know, maybe. But, you know, their behavior, I've kind of looked and said like, okay, yeah, I can definitely see that. And Within their family, there would be some people who struggle with chemical dependency, but we have to remember addiction shows up in a lot of different ways because it's not always chemical. You know, sometimes it's shopping or food or sex or gambling, all kinds of things like that can, that can happen. Some people would lump in codependency with that sort of thing. Sure. Um, there's opinions will vary. Some clinicians will even argue that codependency doesn't exist. On the other hand, ah. it is a term that seems to have a lot of utility for people. And I would say, you know, you can't be diagnosed with codependency, but you can go to residential treatment for it. So jury's out, I guess we'll say. But one way that you can say a lot of compulsive behavior was compulsively trying to save somebody, um, compulsively getting caught up in certain activities and behaviors, including alcohol and other drug use, things like that. So there was a lot of that family history. But with my birth parents, you know, again, take it as you will. They were young, but they managed to get pregnant on the first date. That's me. Uh, within a few days of getting married, my birth mother went off with another guy for a while. She was still pregnant with me. So I say, actually, I went off on my first sex and love addiction affair uh, in utero. 
Oh and gosh. then she returned, you know, my, my birth father eventually started calling friends and saying, Hey, has anyone seen her? And, you know, brought her back in. He's got plenty of his own stuff going on. Um, and they unfortunately were really struggling as parents. They had a great intellectual rapport, but a lot of trouble feeling and communicating emotions with each other. So the emotions would come out sideways. And my sense is he was a little more intellectual and a little more shut down. She was sort of prone to bouts of rage and those were getting worse and worse. Meantime, he sexually abused me, which nobody else knew. And oh, wow. this is all up to the age of about two or two and a half. And so they each had their own issues going on. My birth mother suffered from a lot of depression. Uh, she had been out of a psychiatric hospital for a few months when they met and she got pregnant. And so her depression was getting worse. She became convinced she was the worst possible mother in the world. And so they jointly made a decision that they were going to put me up for adoption. But they didn't want me to be like somewhere else within the family, kind of within their range still. So they basically arranged that as a secret adoption. And which is to say, I was the only grandchild, the only person of my generation, as far as I know, in either family. And then all of a sudden, poof, I was gone. Wow. Um, actually, I take that back. I was the only one on her side, his side. I actually had a cousin who was the same age, a couple cousins actually who were right around my same age. So everyone's having kids and all of a sudden, boom, I'm gone out of the family, which was very jarring for both of us, of course. Um, and California law being what it, was, what it was at the time, actually, I would have been put in a foster home for about a month as a trial separation. And then they would have said, yes, we're going to go ahead and do this. And so then I went to a third home, which was my sort of forever home. But like a lot of kids who go through that sort of experience, you know, it's really hard to explain any of this to a two-year-old anyway, so I don't fault them for not really trying. But at the end of the day, for me, it was just the experience of losing everyone and everything suddenly, having this new family, and then all of a sudden they're gone, and there's a third family, and someone says, here's where you're going to live forever. And part of me was like, yeah, I don't trust it. So and wait, can I stop thing... you for a minute, Casey? Yeah, please do. Yeah. I know you're not, you're not going to forget where you are, because you're never forgetting that story. So when you now you're so young i my earliest memory is you know when the dog got run over by the milk truck when i was maybe four and then i don't have many memories until maybe six so do you actually have memories of this or this is just something that you now know in going back and learning what you have that these are things that absolutely had to have impacted you a uh, little of both well i'm gonna say a lot of it is sort of clinical knowledge and having done a lot of therapy around these issues in in which circumstance sometimes memories do come up. And childhood memory is a funky thing. So you can never say, wow, that's 100% true. I'm, you know, I know for sure that happened. But the emotions stick with us. And we can right. show through research that actually we start learning in utero. We're listening as soon as we develop the facility to listen. We're listening to our mother's heartbeat, her tone of voice. You know, what kind of mood is she in? Is she crying? Is she laughing? What's happening? Whatever muffled sounds we can hear through the uterine walls we're starting to pick stuff up and we can show this. And I've actually was able to demonstrate it in my own life as well with my daughter. Before she was born, I would talk to her every day and I would always use the same little catchphrase, which is hi grape, which has a story behind it. Um, but mm. the moment she was born, I said, hi grape. And the nurse in the, you know, in the delivery room said she started to look like, she, you know, you can't move your neck, but at that age she could move her eyes around and started looking to figure out where I was. Oh, isn't that amazing? So we start picking stuff up. It is. It is. But I've had a couple of flashes of memory from infancy 
both of which have been verified by my birth parents because we're back in contact now. So I know that some of these memories, at the very least, we all agree that they happened. Um, and it's kind of amazing to me that there would be any memories from infancy, but through doing therapeutic work, some of the work that I now try and help other people with, I have recovered some memories where I'm like, oh, okay, boy, this explains a lot. Um, and one of them was up until about six months after the adoption, I wasn't buying it. I was still waiting for my birth parents to come get me. So I was throwing tantrums and just being a total pain. Um, and about six months in, I decided they weren't coming from me. And I have a distinct memory of this that came up in therapy. And I'm standing in my parents' backyard holding this big red ball. And I thought to myself, they're not coming for me. And my very next thought is, I'm on my own. Oh, wow. And isn't that sad that, to think that at such a young yeah. age, because I know I had a lot of chaos in, in my family and I wasn't thrown out in the street or anything, but it's interesting how I feel like I've carried for many, many years and decades probably where it's like, you know, I trust certain people to a certain extent, but feeling like I'm kind of, this, it's, it's me. I, I can trust me and rely on me, which obviously isn't healthy, but you can, I guess, obviously as a therapist, you can understand and, and explain how that can happen. You're explaining it right now, how that can stick with you, be imprinted in you. Well, we make decisions when we're little kids on the fly, trying to survive. And this is where it ties into the conversation about addiction is that, first of all, I was setting myself up for addiction as we went. I mean, my earliest actual memory is in infancy between somewhere between zero and three months old, because we know this because at three months old, my birth mother was told she had to stop breastfeeding me because she had to go back on her medications and she couldn't take the medications and breastfeed me at the same time for obvious reasons. So somewhere in that zero to three month range, I remember one just little, and as memories are at that time, just a flash of memory. And I'm looking up at her as I'm nursing. And the thought I had was I need to keep her attention for as long as possible. And I need to get as much as I can, as fast as I can. Wow. And when I talked to her about this, she goes, yeah, that totally checks out because she is now 20 years old, you know, going through a lot of emotional stuff, you know, you know, deep in her own issues. And what she said is um, when we were breastfeeding together was the only time she could really feel truly connected to me. The rest of the time she wanted to, but she just couldn't find it in herself. So as a little kid, since connection is survival at that age, I mean, it is yeah. kind of at any age, but more so that age than any other really what I was saying to myself is in order to survive, I need to get as much as I can as fast as I can. Wow. And I need to keep her attention. So fast forward 55 years, um, I've, I'm 25 years into recovery around sex and love addiction, which is all about get somebody's attention, keep it as long as you can, get as much as you can, as fast as you can. I need that attention and affirmation to survive was just my underlying belief about the world. And the rest of the time I would feel isolated. And isolation is really bad for people's mental health. So I'm this little kid now. So fast forward here, we are three years old. I am feeling very isolated in the world. Like you said, can't trust anyone. And that's a feature I find in a lot of people with addiction. They get really isolated, even if they're surrounded by people who love them. Internally, they feel cut off and isolated and they're not sure they can trust anybody. And that isolation is really bad for us. It's painful within itself, no matter what other stuff we bring into the equation, it's painful within itself. And addiction in whatever form can feel like a temporary relief from this otherwise endless misery. You know what, Casey, so, you said something yeah, earlier about the, the debate yeah. between whether codependency is an addiction or not, and call mm -hmm. it what you want. It, 
I was living it. So, and I didn't even know anything about it. I mean, before it was, the, you know, those people over there that were married to an alcoholic or something. That's all I knew growing up about codependency until I was full on addicted to trying to save my daughter. But yeah. what you said was interesting when you were talking about isolation and addiction and I relating it to my own, the codependency, whether or not people want to call it addiction, I don't know, but it's a thing. It's a real thing. Um, the isolation you were talking about in my codependency years, I, I've written about this. You can be surrounded with yeah. people that love you. How can that possibly be? I can be the life of the party. Usually am still feeling completely alone. Yeah. Is, that's what you're talking about. It is. And I've, I've, I've been saying this actually at family workshops, teaching about codependency for um, oh, about 10 years or so now. And I put it out there sort of as a joke, but I mean, if anyone comes up with the money, I'd be willing to give it a shot. If anyone has a few million dollars to do the research, like brain scans and brain mapping on people who seem to have a lot of codependent traits, I feel confident we would find a lot of the same stuff that we see in similar scans of people who are otherwise addicted to other other things. And yeah, we know that human connection is huge. That would be really powerful because if, if for every person in addiction, there's you typically, you know, a mom, maybe a dad. So we're talking about the people in addiction times. We're using multiplication now. Mm -hmm. The number of people who have some level of codependency, some level of trying to save, some level of everything that you're talking about. So it would be so interesting, especially if you could somehow go back and have brain maps from early on. Uh, because when I think back to my mother was very young, my mother was 17 when she had my brother. And by the time she was 20, she had three kids and my sperm donor, as I call him was, you know, off doing his thing. And she, all of her dreams were dashed. She didn't go to college. She had scholarships. All of it fell apart on her. But I can remember one of my vivid memories was being maybe seven coming, her coming home from work. You know, I've come home from school and, you know, who knows if someone called me a, you know, carrot top or whatever, growing up as a redhead. And Instead, she's going, oh, I have a headache, brush my hair. So it's really interesting that when codependency came into my life with Jamie, I thought it was just all about Jamie. And it was so weird. I should have been in therapy with you. And we <laughs> we would have gone back and found out some of these you know, situations that I found myself in going, wow, I was taking care of my mom and trying to be the perfect girl and get the perfect grades and keep the house clean and do all the perfect stuff at a very early age. And that kind of sets us up. It does. And it's something, again, this is something that informs my current passion for talking to people about talking to kids about addiction, because people will assume that the kids don't remember anything and it's not affecting them. Hey, if I can just get sober early, or if I can just get sober now, we don't talk about it. It'll just be like it never happened. And I'm over here going, no, 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 no. No, these kids know something's wrong. And when we're little kids, the world's about us. So the presumption yes. if something's wrong, I must have done something. It's something about me or like either I did something or even worse. It is something like intrinsic to me. I am something that's wrong. And, and little kids, kids will take this stuff on. We give them credit for oh being too, I think oh. more and some yes. more intuitive than the others. And for me, my mom took a bottle of pills, long, very long story short, but I, we were at the neighbors because my mom had the flu and we were going to have to stay there for a week. And I went back to the house as a little seven-year-old, my little six-year-old friend, I went in the bathroom and saw this pill bottle. I can still see it all broken up. Some It had been all smashed, but pieces had been put back into the bottom part of it. 
And I remember getting my toothbrush, looking at that bottle and knowing in that moment and never speaking of it for 20 years to anyone and just keeping that, you know, keeping that shame, the worry, whatever it is and keeping that. So there's no question that we, you know, my mom was blown away when decades later, somehow a subject came up that I ended up telling her and she looked at me like, like exactly what you're talking about right now. How could she would have never in a million years guessed that I would have known. Yeah. And you just knew on some level, because as kids, we do, we read our environment partly just to figure out, am I safe? Am I going to be okay? Like, you know, what's it going to take to get through this? So we start with my birth mother with this idea of like, I need to keep her attention. But there's also, you know, when she would lose her temper, I start to get this sense of like, I need to be a certain way so that she's okay. Basically, I start yes. training myself. I need to behave right so that she's okay. I'm more or less at zero, one, one years old, two years old. I'm trying to save her. Right. Well, my new adoptive family, this is what I knew how to do. And there were two people who were ripe for saving my adoptive mom and my adoptive dad. And oh, you were the perfect dad, fit. I, I was a great fit. And I've said this again, semi-jokingly, but it's really not that much of a joke. It's kind of a truth. You know, they went shopping for their second kid. They had uh, they had my older brother biologically. And then my mom was told after miscarriage, you can't have any more kids, don't try. But they wanted another kid. So they went shopping for another kid. That was me which means you got to look at me, all this stuff, a bunch of kids on some level, they look at me and go like, he fits with us. Yeah. And that's because addiction now shows up the second time. In my second family, my dad had a problem with alcohol for mm. all of his life up until the last two years. And I didn't find out until he's, he's been gone for 25 years now. He, and you make, you can do the math there. I've been in recovery 25 years. He's been dead 25 years. I was just starting to get into recovery when he wow. died he was young and it turns out uh no they started pretty old <laughs> was oh. uh, he was i think he was in his uh, late 60s early 70s when he died. well at my age that still sounds young. <laughs> so there you go <laughs> it was yeah it was it was younger than it needed to have been certainly but he had actually stopped drinking for two years i had no idea i never would have seen it coming but we weren't really talking much at that point so I started setting about as a little kid, like, okay, I don't know if I can connect to this family. I don't know that I really trust anybody, but I need to make sure we're all okay. So I you set about a good kid of, again. I'm going to be, well, it would have been debatable if I was a good kid, <laughs> but I will say I, it was in some ways I was a, I was a pain in the butt in a lot of ways. I would not have trusted me as a child and with good reason, but I did have the idea that I wanted to get my dad sober. You know, like I, I could figure out fairly early on if he was drinking, everything was worse and he ran the house. You know, there was no questioning his will. So I wanted to rescue him. And I also wanted to rescue my adoptive mom, who was sort of under this because they loved each other deeply. But when he got drunk, he would call her terrible names and become I don't know what kinds of abusive. Uh, I know certainly emotionally and verbally abusive beyond that. I just don't know, except that I know she'd be very distraught. So in all of that, um, I had this new family where once again, I'm overshadowed by addiction. And I didn't have any name for it. I just knew this is a thing that happens. And it wasn't till high school. So now, let's say probably about 12, 13 years later, 
that I start talking about it for the first time ever, but I've been living with it since the time I was born. And so I've you know always I, been surrounded by it. I don't I mean, I, I don't want to say I love about your story, but I mean, everybody has okay. a story. Okay. There's yeah. nobody's escaping this life without some kind of trauma, adversity. I mean, it's just, it's life, but then we always have a choice. So, you know, and I, as I'm listening to your story, I, I envision it, of course, none of it looks like your parents don't look like what I have in my head, but I literally have this movie running of what your life is like. And I'm thinking about how, how many times we stand at a crossroads and go, okay, well, I'm a victim and this sucks. And I'm going to just continue down this road and, and poor me. And thankfully when you stood at your crossroads, perhaps many times, you've decided to go down this other road and have the courage to talk about your story. Cause lots of times we don't want to do that. You know, literally when I was saying about my mom taking the bottle of pills, I'm going, okay, my mom won't listen to this podcast that went through my head. Mm -hmm. So it does take courage to tell your story. Honestly, you're not saying anything derogatory about people. It's your story, your viewpoint, your fact, but that takes courage. And then um, I feel like now what you're working, I kind of want to really want to get into this, your latest book, because you're taking some serious pain and I'm hearing, you know, you wanted your dad to be sober and all that. And now you're going back into that little boy, that little three month old looking up at his mom and and figuring out how to speak to children and i think this has got to be a market that almost doesn't exist and i don't want to use the word market but you know this is an untapped area because i find just in what i do and you're obviously in in recovery treatment with families and stuff i find over and over when i've talked to recovery centers they go our family programs there aren't enough of them we don't have enough resources you know we're here for the person in addiction and the families are sort of, oh, well, let's see, what should we do? Hey, go to Al-Anon, go to Naranon. They don't really know what to do with families a lot. And I hear over and over, there aren't enough resources for families. And so obviously, you know, a lot of what I do is working with adults, but now you've written this book that is speaking to children. And, and it is a perfectly short, simple book as it needs to be for your audience. But I wonder how much went into you having to get to that short, simple, you know, these important phrases that you put in there and then what you put at the end. So we're going to be talking now about Casey's latest book, which is called Mommy's Getting Sober. I find it interesting you didn't say daddy, by the way. But anyway, well, there's going to be a daddy edition. Um, I figured mommy and daddy are getting sober would be uh, a whole other level for most people. Uh, typically, one parent will get sober at a time. But yeah, I, uh, I've worked with a lot of kids through the family workshops that I've been doing. Um, and I've, I started doing those a little over 10 years ago. And I remember sitting in the first one and just thinking like, I'm sitting in the back. I wasn't a therapist. I wasn't going to school yet. Any of that stuff. I'm just, they said, Hey, go see what one of these is like at this treatment, the first treatment center that I worked at. And I sat in the back and I watched these two people work with uh, one or two or three families at a time. And it just blew my mind. I just saw people opening up on a level where I thought, wow, amazing things are happening here that that I don't see happening in the day-to-day -day in the treatment center. Like something special is happening here. How do I learn how to do this? Which was part of my impetus for going back to school was the idea that like I could be you know, able to do that with people. And indeed, over time, they said like, you know, as I was going to school, they're like, hey, we want you to come and co-facilitate. And then one day, as sometimes happens in the treatment world, is like, oh, and that other person who was running it up until now, they're gone all of a sudden. It's your workshop. And that was, I'm going to say, 
probably about 11-ish years ago. And so- What a blessing. I, it was. And so I took over and I was running it. And then um, that place closed and I was invited to move to another state where I live now, down in Texas, and sort of revamp the family workshop they had going. So the first one was kind of handed to me. The second one was like, hey, you get to help shape this a little bit. We have something going on. We're not totally satisfied with it. You know, help build it up. And so I got to work within that model and shape it and develop it along with uh, Dr. Heather Ingram, who is also great with families. And she and I both uh, had moved to Texas at the same time to do this thing, to work on this family workshop, wow. and of course, the treatment center in general. But that was sort of the main, like, we want you to come down and do this here, you know, meet Dr. Ingram. And so, yeah, we shook hands. We hit it off really well. We still work together today at In My Doubt Emotional Wellness Center, which she started and I just worked there. Um, and she said, I just worked there. I get to do therapy there a couple times a week and it's really cool. But we did a lot of work around families and we did it on a different format than I'd done before. Up until that point, it had always been by invitation. Now is sort of an open format, just like each weekend we're holding a family workshop. If you have a loved one at the treatment center, feel free to drop in. You could come every week while they're here, you know, which typically would be three to four weeks, or you could, uh, you know, maybe a lot of people would just get there once. And of course, a lot of families never showed up. But in the course of doing that, sometimes people would bring their younger children. And my first thought is like, man, I don't know what to do here. And then I just found, okay, these kids have the exact same stuff going on. As you said, they know a lot more than anyone wants to, I don't want to say give them credit for, but anyone wants to admit. I think it's scary for people to recognize how much kids are picking up on. And so I just started talking to them on a level that seemed like they could understand. And when we would get into a part of the workshop where the families would sit together in a little circle in the chairs and just talk with each other, and my job was to kind of help facilitate this conversation and help them to open up communication with each other and talk about things they didn't know how to talk about. One thing I learned from another family therapist was the idea of have the person with the least amount of voice normally in the family, have them speak first. And that was almost invariably little kids. Yeah. Very rarely in a family conversation does everyone start by turning to the six-year-old and saying, what do you think? So I would do that. And I would start getting the kids involved. And at first, shamelessly, I was hoping this would leverage the parents into sobriety, kind of like, oh, wow, my kid totally gets it. And, but I would just be able to say, like, how does it, you know, when, when you see, you know, your mom or your dad acting this way, can you tell them how it feels for you? And sometimes they'd be kind of shy and mumble a little bit, but then they would start to open up and say, it's really scary. Um, how does it feel to you, the idea that your parent is here now learning how to not do that anymore? And you, of course, tears all around and the kids be saying, you know, this is, this is what I want more than anything else in the world. Mm. And so I started to hear some of those things, but you'd also hear some of the concerns. And of course, there was my own lived experience because from age two and a half until 18, when I left the house, I grew up under the shadow of my dad's drinking. And there were a couple of times, I can think of one in particular, where he just stopped with no warning, didn't say anything to anybody. He wasn't like going to a fellowship like AA or Smart Recovery or anything like that. He just stopped. And I remember going out to dinner at a restaurant that we always went to. And I could have, I mean, when the waiter walked up, I could have turned to them and said, he'll have a vodka with a twist of lemon, please. Oh, wow. Or I said, vodka on the rocks with a twist of lemon. I could have ordered it for him. And he said, oh, sparkling water. And you could see the whole family just freeze sitting around the table. Like nobody knew what to do. He didn't order alcohol. Like that never happens. And this went on for about six months. 
and everyone's just holding still. There's no conversation to the family saying, hey, dad's getting sober and here's kind of what this means and you know, blah, blah, blah. Nothing like that happened. We were all just holding, everyone's holding their breath. Nobody wants to rock the boat. And then one day we're out to dinner and he says, y'all have vodka rocks with a twist. Oh, I guess we went, that was over. Yep, I guess that was that. And we didn't talk about it then either. <laughs> like maybe my mom and dad were having conversations. Uh, but of course, she would have been forbidden to say anything to anyone, including or maybe even especially us. We were all forbidden to talk to the neighbors about it, et cetera, et cetera. So both my lived experience, all the people I've worked with in family workshops, all the clients and just people I've known who grew up, who talked about what their experience was like with kids, talking with parents about what they've heard from their kids, like when the parent is in treatment. And I just thought, I don't know that anybody's written a book. There, there are a couple of children's books out there helping explain addiction. I don't know that anyone's written a book that you could hand to a child while their parent is in treatment or just going into treatment or just getting out of treatment to say like, here's how you deal with this change in your life. The change that nobody talked about in my family. Right. Um, to say Probably like, haven't what does until it look very like? recently people, it was, yeah. we're just in a different time now. We are. And I'm, I'm very blessed and hoping to be part of that. And, I've told this story a couple of times, but it's uh, the the title of the book actually started out as a joke because I'm part of a writer's marketing group and I have a book out on helping people find spirituality, including spirituality to help them in their recovery. I have, that's called spirituality for people who hate spirituality. I have a book called Realistic Hope, which is, thank you. <laughs> my book Realistic Hope is based on all of my experience in conducting the family workshops and trying to basically take a lot of that family workshop experience and put it into a book so that if you didn't happen to go to my treatment center, which right now I'm with Windmill Wellness Ranch, which has given me amazing freedom to build an amazing family program. Um, but I thought if you don't happen to come to Windmill, you may never get any of this stuff the way we're presenting it. So let me put that in book form. So that was the first book. So I'm working with this writer's marketing group, just authors getting together saying, you know, how are you promoting your book? Here's what I'm doing. And one of them says, hey, children's books are really hot right now. You should think about writing a children's book. And I brushed it off. And I, in my sort of sarcastic sense of humor, I said, given my field, what am I going to write? I made a book called Mommy Drinks Too Much. And then I got home. That wouldn't be bad. An actually. hour later. It was, yeah, it was probably a good book. And but this, is, this be, is a little bit more on the positive side of things. Though. It is. It is. Well, by the time I got home, like driving home from that, you know, marketing group, I thought, no, there should be a book called Mommy's Getting Sober. Yeah. And so I sat down and I wrote it that night. I just sat down and just because I looked up what's your typical children's book. They said 24 pages. So I wrote 24 lines. And, you know, I ran it by my wife, who certainly has no addiction in her own family. And she's also in recovery. And got up in the morning, did a little editing and said, okay, that's the text. Now I got to come up with some pictures. And I've worked with a couple different artists until I found the perfect artist. Sky Hilton was amazing in her stuff. And um, as she has also openly talked about, she's in recovery. These issues have touched her family. I really wanted to work with an artist where they also knew this material intimately. And yeah, so you felt like your are, art would be, yeah. uh, they would feel. I mean, it was much more yeah. than just someone creating something artistic, but it was from their soul. That's cool. Yeah. And you know, the typical thing that you see in a children's book, and there's nothing wrong with this, but you know, somebody like the words will say, you know, sitting, looking at the moon through my window. And you'll probably see a picture of a kid sitting, looking at the moon through the window. Yes. But what Sky did that I love is she had the pictures match the emotions yeah. of the lines in the book, but also yeah. the pictures tell their own story. And what she did, which I love, 
to see if she had gotten it right is she had a friend who had been through some of this experience as well. Just look at the pictures in sequence. And could they tell what was happening? Oh, wow. And she said within two or three pictures, they were like, I totally get what is happening here. Wow, that's amazing. So the pictures themselves tell the tell the story and then the words. And then what was really important to me, and this this didn't hit me until a little bit later in the process, is that I wanted to include in the book a guide on how to talk to kids about addiction. Okay, that's exactly what say, I was going to bring yeah, up next, is this guide. Yeah, because it's one thing to say, hey, you should talk to your kids. But if you have no idea, and there is often generations of trauma around this, I can't just say, hey, go get them, Tiger, and give nobody any idea of where to start. If they maybe have been raised saying, don't talk about it, or at the very least, nobody modeled how to talk about it. So it was really important to me to put that in there and to write it in a way where if you're a caregiver, and I said caregiver's guide, because sometimes the parents are not the ones raising the kids. Sometimes oh, right. it's the grandparent or the aunt yes. or the uncle thinking, how am I going to talk to these kids? More and more and more that's happening. So I thought I want to write this caregiver's guide. But I also, while I didn't write it at a children's level, I also thought, you know, because I'm a four or five-year-old and we're reading through this book and I hope really, you know, get something out of it. And the whole idea is for it to open up conversations and give the kids a voice and give the parents or caregivers an idea of what the kid might be thinking and how to start, you know, hopefully that starts the ball rolling. I wanted everything in there to be something where if the child said, can you read me this part too? I was, that's and exactly what I was it. wondering about how, yeah, you thought, I, I how thought, your thought process was on that. Well, my thought process was, you know, short of writing a little pamphlet that got tucked into the book, it was going to be part of the book because as kids get older, everything in there is something I'd want them to know. Yes. Both for well, their own experience we, um, and someday raising their own kids. Th yeah, this is so good. So can we go? Okay. So I know, you know, we don't have that much time left, but I really want to, um, from that perspective that you're talking about. So if you're a child and, and this book's meant for what age would you say? A range? I actually put it down age four to 12. Okay. So yeah, there's no reason a 12 year old can't read a simple book. Oh yeah. Right. Okay. So if I'm now I'm this 12 year old or 10 year old or whatever point five year old, you know, I was reading when I was five. So you can, you know, you pick this up. And so from their perspective, they've read this really great book that gives your 24 tips, not 24 tips, the 24, what would you call them? Feeling, I mean, <laughs> they're, they're all about, you know, from the child's perspective, like saying, um, going through the process know, of mommy getting sober yeah, and how, the, yeah, the process and, and presuming she, and I said, she had to go away for a while. I didn't say, did she go to jail? Did she go to treatment? Did she right, just go dry out at her, at her you know, brother's house? Just sort of, she had to go for a while. And everybody told me it wouldn't be that long, but it felt like a long time to me. Oh, and I yeah. think people forget that, you know, we forget that summer, summer break from school used to just seem to, you know, go on endlessly. And yeah. then the school year went on endlessly too. You know, when we're little kids, our sense of time, you know, it, it takes a long time to get through something that is an adult. We may just say like, oh, honey, don't worry. She'll be back soon. Well, when you're a kid, it doesn't feel like it's soon. Yeah, and soon so again, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so again, being able to address that with kids and, and have them be able to say, yeah. So in any case, so yes, those, those 24 lines in the book, each one well, hoping to express. Okay. Something so now if I'm a kid book. and I'm in the back and, you know, parent, parents are, can, what's good about it too, is they're not just going here, read this book, kid, you know? So now the parents are almost, um, it almost gives them sort of. A responsibility, I guess, to be a part of it rather than just going, here's the book. 
So whether or not they say, you know, mommy, read this to me, or they end up reading it themselves. So the first thing is above all is to be honest. So what I love about that is that you're basically saying to the child and the parents, this is going to have to be an honest relationship, an honest process. That is right? absolutely what I'm shooting for. Yes, because it is the number one, I'm going to say mistake, misstep, no matter how well-intentioned that people do, uh, is that they just, I'm not going to say invariably, but so often start out by just lying to the child. Yeah. And I've seen this in working for about 15, 16 years now in the treatment field. Is that yeah, or sugarcoating or whatever? Oh yeah, well they just say like, oh you know, daddy's at work, um, or my all-time favorite, you know, daddy's sick, he had to go see the doctor, and I'm thinking, you're going to be gone for thirty, sixty, sometimes ninety days, and you're telling the kid, daddy's at the doctor. What's going to happen the first time you decide to take? You know, you tell the kid, <laughs> hey, we're taking you to the doctor. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, the child's like, am I going to vanish? Yeah. Um, you know, but there are ways, and I, I try and put this in that caregiver's guide, there are ways to t talk about, basically about mental illness, to say like, okay, because addiction, whether people like to look at it this way or not, from any scientific perspective, is mental illness. So being able to say, sometimes our minds can get sick. It's not just our body. Sometimes our minds can get sick, and yeah. we need to get help. Just like if you get help, you might know, need to go see a medical doctor. Sometimes we need to go see whatever, you know, again, talking to a young child, we could say talking, you know, to see a mind doctor. Sometimes we need to get away from the things that are causing so much trouble in our life that, yeah, our parent does need to go away for a few weeks. And that may seem like a very long time. And fairly quickly after talking about being honest is also reassuring the child that they're going to be okay, that they're safe. Yeah. Okay. So I'm looking at kids need to know. two and three. Yeah, go ahead. I feel like two and three it hit me as if I, you know, if I was a little kid, I'm thinking kind of almost, uh, connected because the second point that Casey has in this caregiver's guide is reassuring them that they can be, they can be okay even if their parent struggles and then the third one is let them know it's not their fault and I because I feel a lot of guilt somewhere in there too because we we are shame that a kid is going to carry for what their parents are going through and feeling like it, it, it feels like almost what you're saying it's not any different from how I felt the shame of what Jamie was going through because I was her parent. This is in reverse. Yeah. Well, I mean, these it's funny because these tips that I would say, here's how to talk to kids about addiction, is not really radically different than I would tell any other family member to talk yeah. to each other about addiction. Yeah. That... To, know, to know that we can be okay even if someone else struggles, to have open, honest conversations, to be honest about our own struggles. Um. And we have an opportunity when we're being honest with kids about our struggles to also model solution. But that could be just as true if you're talking about your child or your sibling or your own parent to be able to say, maybe I'm going to be the first one in recovery in my family and I'll be modeling that. And other people may or may not, you know, profit from that example. But at the very least, I'm going to show up as someone in recovery so I can be honest about my struggle, but also embrace solution openly. You know, it's not a secret that I'm going to meetings or to a therapist or talking to people about this. I'm open about the fact that, hey, I am struggling and there is solution available. You know, I'm going to get involved with that. You know, you say anyone wants to come with me to a meeting, you are more than welcome. And by the way, a lot of people don't recognize this or, or realize it. But if you're going to say Al-Anon meetings, which is kind of the great grandmother of them all, uh, kids are welcome. 
Yes. You know, there is a sort of breakout group called Alateen that is specifically for like teenagers, you know, 13 to 18 kind of thing or 13 to 19. And that's usually almost exclusively their parents are addicted. But I've seen, you know, four-year-old kids, six-year-old kids at Al-Anon meetings. And, you know, usually they're doing what kids do. They squirm and they run around and they cause a ruckus. And sometimes different members of the group take turns. And I've seen the same thing at, at you know, at 12-step recovery meetings and things like that, or other kind of recovery fellowship meetings, sometimes other people will take turns watching over the kids so that the parent or the person who's in distress the most can sit quietly in the meeting and soak up everything they need. Because we know if that parent gets what they need, the kids are better off. Absolutely. Like this is, this is feeding the whole family. Absolutely. So your, your number six tip is get help for everyone. I think that's so important because and i liken it again to you keep saying that you know the the adult and the children the approach is not that much different with adults and children just maybe how you say it or how you speak to them but i feel like it's that same way here that i have so many moms that that you know come to me and go you know this is happening with my son and this and crazy and it's all about them it's all about them now certainly we want them clean sober whatever you want to call it out from underneath the weight of their addiction beast more than anything but we think it's, we don't have any work to do. It's just all, if they would just do the right thing, if they would just fix this thing, I would be okay. So I like that you're saying, and that's really, if I'm a parent reading this and I'm going through treatment, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I've got to keep remembering that my son, my daughter, they need help too. This is not just about me fixing my problems, but look, at it's affecting them too. Yeah, and I will say that something has been very gratifying because as of this recording, the book's been out for just about a week or so. And it's, or no, maybe it's been two weeks now. What's been super gratifying is the reaction I've gotten from parents who are reading the book. Yeah. And I've seen, I mean, I had a mom who has been sober for about five years now. I will say maybe it's been six. And she read through the book just, oh, you got this book. Okay. And so she's just kind of leafing through it and she started crying. Oh, wow. She's like, oh, Casey, you made me cry with this book. And I thought, you know, I wrote this book for kids to read, but thinking, you know, a fond hope is that a lot of adults can get a lot from reading this as well. That, the, Like I you said, so. this isn't something you just need to hand to your kid, but something to read through together, partly to understand their point of view, but also for a lot of us, I mean, addiction is so often intergenerational and it may skip a generation or two and then pop back up. But it's very rare that I've ever worked with any client who is actually the first person with an addiction in their entire family tree. Usually it's all over the place and maybe people aren't talking about it or whatever, but it's there. And so many, many adults are walking around who maybe don't even have kids or whose kids have never witnessed that addiction firsthand, who they themselves are still carrying that intergenerational intergenerational trauma. And my hope is that you know, if this book can find their way into their hands as well, that it can open up a discussion for them about what it was like to be a child with this stuff. And that wow, that's, that's another way that it can help people heal. And I didn't even that's see that coming. It didn't cross my mind when I wrote the book until it got it out in the world and people started picking it up and saying, here's how I'm reacting to reading this book, even though, you know, my kids are, you know, young adults and all that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a new perspective on it. What I love, though, then, is it's sort of like three, four, five books in one in a summarized fashion. So it isn't like you're picking up this 300-page book and going, oh, my gosh, now i got to figure out how to help my kids or, you know, I'm, I've got to figure out what my role is with them. 
Um, I like that you gave this guide. Sure, people can always dig deeper. They can um, work with you and other people like you. Um, but I think it was the smartest thing you did was put this um, tips for caregiver guide in the back. Thank you. And it's it's something it's it's a process I started really with my first book, Realistic Hope, <clears throat> which is before I wrote the book, I just thought, does the world actually need this book? I mean, maybe there's like 20 books like this that are as good as anything I could write. So I started looking to see, like, what else is out there? And if there are other things, how might mine be different? And I remember when I was starting to write Realistic Hope and thinking, OK, I'm going to write this book as a guide for families. So they just have like this survival manual someone else uh and they were like way better credentialed you know established people been on television all this kind of stuff and they had written a book for families kind of sounding like kind of something similar to what i want to write so i got a copy of their book to just see do i need to even bother to write this maybe it's already covered and the very first thing that they said and i think well-intentioned i know where they're coming from i'm not slamming it but they said family member it's up to you and i thought that's kind of the opposite of what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm yeah. saying family member, learn your own recovery first. You take care of you. You can't actually save your loved one. No. Um, yeah. You can do what you can to help set the table, open the door, all that kind of stuff, but you can't actually save them. So if their book you is going to say- You might die trying up, though. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God, yeah. You might, and people have literally died trying and yeah. gotten themselves terribly sick and bankrupt and you name it. So I thought, okay, nobody's written the book I'm looking to write. Well, similarly with this, I looked to see has anyone else written some books on addiction and, and they had, and none of them seemed to be hitting the exact same thing again with a parent who's getting sober, but also I didn't see anywhere else where someone was saying, here's how, how you actually talk to the kids. So I thought that's something I want to put in the world that, that maybe isn't out there yet. And if it inspires 20 more people to do the same, then God bless them. Let's publish all those books and get the message out there. I love that. Okay. So this book, obviously you can get it on Amazon. Um, probably other bookstores, but um, your website is caseyauthor.com with regard to your being an author, that part of your life, right? That's, that's, got all, that's got the books, it's got my podcast, it's got YouTube videos we've put out. So caseyauthor.com also, um, he has the Addiction and the Family podcast, but if you go to caseyauthor.com, you're going to find all of his other books that he talked about and this latest book, Mommy's Getting Sober. Let me ask you this, because you mentioned it briefly when I kind of said, hey, what about daddy? Are you writing another daddy's getting sober so that there's a a book for each? Or was that just a comment? I very deliberately wrote it in a way where it would be easy to switch it over. The hardest thing to change is the illustrations. So when Sky was doing the illustrations, I said, hey, it would be like much easier on both of us if you can do the illustrations in a way where it's fairly easy to put out a daddy's getting sober edition. And so she is working on that artwork right now. So she'll obviously yeah. change the cover. And there's, I think there's two or three illustrations that would want to switch over. Uh, but besides that, it's a clean thing because most of the illustrations actually focus on the child herself. Yeah, I think that's perfect. That's awesome. Well, um, I don't just wish you luck. I'm really hoping and praying literally that this book goes out and touches a lot of people because I feel like you enter into treatment, you have a child at home, this should be the automatic, hey, this is part of the curriculum, you know, this book. So I hope that um, however it happens, that it gets out to a lot of recovery centers and family programs and just, you know, people searching on the internet. So I'm really happy and honored that I was able to talk to you about this. And thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you. And Valerie, you're, as you well know, but I'm going to say it anyway, you're doing amazing work. And so I appreciate the opportunity to be here and be part of what you're doing as well. Okay. Well, we'll talk again. How about that?
That sounds fantastic. Okay. Thanks again.